Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode one in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study podcast. This episode is entitled, The God Who Comforts and Leads, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 4. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, in the entire book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to be talking a lot about himself. He's going to be talking a lot about his own experiences, his call to ministry. Uh, He's going to present himself um, very powerfully and clearly to the Corinthians because it seems that he's under pretty severe attack by a group of people called, he calls them super apostles, and they're discrediting his ministry, deconstructing it, and they're trying to gain control control, it seems, of the Corinthians and to domineer them in some way. So Paul talks a lot about himself, but in the midst of all of it, he speaks as an apostle of Jesus Christ, but speaks with the timeless wisdom that only the Holy Spirit could give. So the things he says in his immediate circumstance uh, that he's writing the Corinthians about are universally applicable to every generation. 20 centuries of Christians have read these words and benefited from them. Mm. And so Paul, going through great sufferings and difficulties for the gospel, has received comfort from the Lord and is able to pass on the lessons of comfort and wisdom to those that he was ministering to and then ultimately to us. Uh, He also talks about the change of plans that he made and how Paul makes his decisions and why he does it. And he points ultimately to Christ as the fulfillment of all the promises of God. So we have a lot of ground to cover today. Well, so that we have a sense of what we'll be looking at today, I'm going to go ahead and read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us. 
that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Given that Paul has to defend his ministry and his apostleship in this in this epistle from the super apostles that you mentioned, how significant is his initial greeting, Paul, an apostle? Well, it is out of that authority that Paul writes. When we when we're reading Paul's epistles that are in the New Testament, we are re, we we are reading the Word of God, and that's because he is an a sent one, an apostle of Christ Jesus with authority. He has the right to speak the Word of God, the responsibility to speak the Word of God to these settings. But in the wisdom of God, something that goes far beyond anything Paul could have ever orchestrated, the circumstances that he is led to address in all of his epistles, whether to the Galatians or the Ephesians, Philippians or the Colossians or the Corinthians, uh, they are so necessary for every local church to read, so necessary for every individual Christian to read, that God in his wisdom orchestrated all of these Pauline epistles and the other epistles as well to give us everything we need for life and godliness. So we are hearing the actual word of God from this apostle of Christ Jesus. Who the super apostles were, we barely know them. Hmm. They're like dust in the wind. Hmm. But they created a certain context for Paul to address, and he writes with that authority of Christ Jesus. The greeting in verse 2 is Paul's standard greeting, yet it's filled with theologically significant words like grace and peace. Why do you think Paul makes it a practice to greet his readers with grace and peace from God? Yeah, we've noticed this before that you enter into a Pauline epistle with the phrase grace to you and you leave with the words grace be with you. And so it is just an experience, a, a, a soaking shower of grace as you read this epistle. Uh, grace is, uh, I think, the settled determination of God before the foundation of the world to do his people good who deserve eternal wrath, mm. to do them good in Christ Jesus. And I would add, 
individual manifestations of that goodness along the way. Both of those are called grace. So grace could be something huge, like Christ dying for our sin, or something small, like the grace of a, of a, a small answered prayer. And so the epistle itself is a form or a channel or a conduit of grace from God. What it tells me is my soul isn't done needing grace. Mm. I'm not done being saved. I don't believe we need any more grace when we're glorified. But as long as we have not yet been finally glorified, we still need more grace. And the epistle, as we read it, is a conduit or pipeline of grace to our souls. And then he says, peace to you also from God, our mm. Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think what that must be is an experience or a sense of peacefulness. Uh, and it's based on the fact that we have a status objective status of peace with God, somewhat like nations that are not at war with each other. Hmm. So we have received peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ since we have been justified through faith, Romans 5.1. But Philippians 4 says, whenever we're tempted to be anxious, we should pray, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So that's a feeling or a sense of peacefulness. I think it's more that latter sense that may reading this give you a feeling of peacefulness from God our Father. Mm -hmm. Now, verse 3, Paul launches into uh, this incredible uh, doxology. Blessed mm -hmm. be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And I know in my own life, this passage has been uh, particularly comforting as we've walked through seasons of difficulty or trial uh, and seeing what God may be doing. But uh, that's what we want to talk about as we walk through this initial portion of the passage. How does does God comfort us in times of affliction, and how do particular sufferings lead to specific comforts that can be used to comfort others? Yeah, those are great questions. First of all, comfort, um, it just... I think uh, immediately of Isaiah 40, where it's doubled up, comfort, comfort mm. my people, says your God. And I think what it means is is you could imagine being ruffled, being troubled, being afflicted. Mm. And then along comes a kind of a warm blanket uh, surrounding you and wrapping you up and calming you and smoothing you down and bringing you peace. And so that's a, a kind of a picture of comfort. And so I think what it means is that God brings us truth that calms our souls and quiets our souls. Uh, the psalmist gives an image of a of a baby that has finished nursing for for that particular session and is really sleeping on his mother's breast. He's completely happy, warm, fed, and protected, and there's no trouble in the world. Mm. That's an ultimate picture of comfort. Well, God can do that, and and he, he links it into God's very being. He is the God of all comfort. So any real comfort you've ever gotten has really come from God. God mm. brings comfort and consolation to you. And he is the God who brings us comfort through Christ Jesus, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He brings us comfort in any affliction we could ever be in. Because here's the thing, in the end, in the end, we are going to heaven where there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. And there is a crystal sea there, which contrary to the sea that we see in uh, Daniel chapter seven, which is churning and roiling and 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 just waves crashing up, uh, up in heaven, it's complete tranquility and peacefulness. It's just a beautiful picture of that crystal sea. So you imagine that peacefulness that comes from God, that God himself is able to comfort us in any and every affliction, all of the afflictions, Paul would say, even in this very epistle, are light and momentary. Mm. God is able to speak peace like Jesus stilling the storm and bring comfort. And then 
We hear the specific ways he does it. Keep in mind that I'm working out this affliction so that you be growing in your sanctification, etc. He brings certain lessons. And then when others have the exact same affliction we do, it might be cancer. Mm. Uh, it might be a significant illness in a child. Uh, it might be uh, uh, single people that yearn uh, to be single. And maybe God brings that individual or yearn, yearn to be married. And, and God brings that individual through years of singleness, mm -hmm. yearning for a spouse, and then resolves it in a very sweet way by bringing a godly person into their life. But then they're able to tell the kinds of things they learn through those years of singleness to others that are wringing their hands and wondering if God could ever bring someone into my life. They're able to comfort other people with the same comfort we ourselves have received from God. That's such a sweet picture, and it really is amazing how God uses that to help us comfort others. But I also think it helps us to understand something about God himself. How can these kind of trials and the way God uses them help us to see the providence of God mm -hmm. in the trials and sufferings that he allows in our lives? Yeah, I think for me to answer that question, I would go immediately to James or to count him, count it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Uh, because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that we'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God is shaping us and molding us. Paul will say in this very epistle that these epistles are or these sorry, these trials are preparing us for a glory that far outweighs them all. That God is using the trial to prepare us for glory. There's an intentionality in it. There's a wisdom in it. There's a limit to it. He will not tempt us beyond what we can bear. All of these things are true, and we're going to see more of them as we go on in 2 Corinthians. Yeah. Now, as we move into verse 5, how do we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings and comfort and how does this idea relate to Matthew 20 and Colossians 1? Well, uh, the Apostle Paul shared abundantly in the sorrows and afflictions of Christ because he was incredibly faithful in evangelism and missions and in confronting the forces of evil. He was coming after Satan's domain, and he was he was sent as a heat-seeking missile to blow up a lot of strongholds, satanic strongholds. And so uh, when you're doing ministry with that kind of boldness and faithfulness and, and integrity, you're going to get pounded. And so the sufferings of Christ flowed, flowed over into Paul's life because of his faithfulness. I do believe that that's not equally true of every Christian in this world. Some of us really don't have many of those kinds of sufferings of Christ flowing into our lives. So what I would say is the more faithful that we seek to be in the external journey of gospel advance, the more the sufferings of Christ will flow into our lives. And so the special spiritual comfort that God can bring to people that are in affliction, uh, he will bring to those who need it. And so if you want to experience in that, that, then step out more boldly in faith in serving Christ in the Great Commission. How then do the sufferings and comforts of one Christian, Paul in this case, produce perseverance and salvation in the lives of other Christians? Well, Paul frequently asked the Corinthians to, or others, the Ephesians, to, uh, to join with him in his suffering by praying to God for him. And he even says that in the same chapter, uh, as we'll see um, later in verse 10 and 11, as you join with us in your prayers. And so the idea is that as you partner with suffering Christians, as it says in Hebrews, if you pray for the those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are suffering persecution as if you also were suffering it, then you are going to be partners with them in the comfort that flows into their lives. When the situation is, is resolved, when they are set free from prison, let's say, 
away or some incredible thing happens in their ministry, they, uh, it's almost like you're buying, buying shares in a company, like in the stock market. You've bought a bunch of shares and so you get a big return on the investment mm. because you care so much through prayer and through compassion. So that's how the comforts that happen to other people then flow into our lives. Uh, speaking more kind of in an ordinary suffering sort of way, the same is true of maladies like cancer or other things like that. When you are walking with someone through that valley and you have an arm around them and you're, and you're sharing with the ins and outs of their radiation or the chemotherapy or the different things that it's doing to their bodies, as they walk through that and come through to healing, you've really joined with them and, and then the comforts of Christ flow into your life as well. Now, what do we learn in verse seven is really Paul's final hope for his readers, the recipients of this letter. Yeah, he, he says, uh, I want you also to experience the same kind of comforts that I always have. And that's our hope for you. He says, uh, just as you share in our sufferings, you're going to share in our comfort. So could be that the Corinthians are, you know, they're in a pagan city and they're going to be uh, afflicted and persecuted. Like he openly says to the Philippians, he said, you're going through the same sufferings you saw I have and us here that I still have. So our hope for you is that you get comforted too. That you have, uh, you know, an experience of sorrow and affliction and suffering that then resolves into great supernatural comfort. In verses 8 through 11, we learn that God trains us to trust in Him and not ourselves. In verses 8 and 9, what hardships is Paul referring to? And what happened to Paul that was so extreme as to make him despair of life itself? Well, I think you would go to the end of this very epistle uh, in 2 Corinthians 11. He gives a, a resume of suffering such as no one can equal in church history. And we'll circle uh, back to that later and talk about it. So we don't know for sure what suffering he experienced in the province of Asia. Uh, that would be, I guess, modern day uh, Turkey. Uh, but they uh, were in some ways maybe in, incarcerated, uh, maybe beaten, uh, persecuted in some way. But it was so bad that it says that he despaired even of life. So you can imagine a beating so severe, like one of the eight times he received a beating, five times with lashes, three times with rods, was so severe that it was it was unclear whether Paul would survive. Mm. Uh, or it could be that none of that had happened yet, but they were incarcerated with a death sentence hanging over their heads that mm. was said to them by the officials, you're going to be executed this time next week or something like that. And they said, well, there's no way out. Uh, we're definitely going to be executed. So we despaired even of life. And he said, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what he was going through. I don't know any other details. Um, but what Paul does say is he said there was a reason for it. This happened for a reason. And the reason it happened was to teach us that we should not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, Wes, you and I were talking before we started. This is one of the key verses that I find in this, in this epistle or in the entire New Testament of the severe problem that all of us have of self-reliance. This is one of the biggest problems in life is that we are weaned off of self-reliance onto Christ's reliance, reliance on Christ. This is a big problem. I noticed it years ago when I meditated on Deuteronomy chapter one. And in Deuteronomy one, uh, we have the, the recounting of when the 12 spies were sent into the promised land and they come back with a kind of a mixed report. The mm. land is beautiful. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. Huge cluster of grapes that they had to string on a pole between two men's shoulders. Uh, amazing. However, there's a problem. We saw cities there, walled cities with walls up to the sky. And we saw like massively tall warriors there. They were so tall that honestly, we look like grasshoppers 
in their eyes. And we felt the same to us. So honestly, then the nine, uh, uh, sorry, the 10 spies spread this report, this bad report, saying it's a land that devours its inhabitants and we're going to get destroyed. And our only hope is to go back to Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so they spread this terrible report. But what was happening was they looked at the the walls and they looked at the at the Anakites, the tall warriors, and then they looked within mm. to see if the resources mm. to meet that challenge was there, and they did not find it, and they despaired. Mm. As a result, God judged them and said none of them would go in the promised land, but their children were, and they were consigned to 40 years walking in the desert. Well, then they changed their mind. They said, oh, oh wait, 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 never mind. We can do it. And then it says in Deuteronomy 1, then each of you strapped on his armor, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. Mm-hmm. Self-reliance. Only this time you look inward and see if you can meet that challenge and you do find the resources there and that leads to arrogance. Mm-hmm. So they strapped on their armor, they went in and they got beaten, crushed, and they cried out to God, but God paid no attention. Mm. So here's the thing. They had the same problem in both cases, self-reliance. When you are self-reliant and you look inward to meet the challenge and you do not find that the resources there, despair comes. Mm. On the other hand, when you look at the challenges and you look inward and you do find the resources there within yourself, then arrogance, despair and arrogance are two sides of the same coin, and that coin is self-reliance. Well, according to 2 Corinthians 1, it's a problem for everybody. The apostle Paul, the godliest man on earth, still had to be weaned off of self-reliance. So terrible trials come in to teach you to not rely on yourself, but on God. And look what he says, who raises the dead. Fascinating expression. Why do you think, Wes, says the God who raises the dead? I think about all of the terrible trials we can face in this life the most significant you'd think from our perspective is death right yeah. how do you overcome this enemy death and mm-hmm. so to say this is this is the god who who can and does and has overcome yeah. death that same kind of power is accessible to you exactly i love it and and also let's let's take the, that whole theme of self-reliance so Oh, Mr. Self-Reliant Man, what's your plan on defeating death? Yeah, how are you doing in the, how you, the how you end of life that? category? Yeah, you, yeah. You how are you going to raise your corpse up out of the grave? What's your self-reliant plan for that? Uh, mm. I don't have any answers. Yeah. Crickets. Mm. So if you can't do that ultimate thing, without which, frankly, none of this matters. Because mm. like Book of Ecclesiastes is all about if there is no resurrection from the dead, then the whole thing doesn't matter. Let's be honest. None of your projects will last. You'll give them to a son or grandson who'll be totally inept and he'll fritter it all away and you will have wasted your life, all right? So let's be honest, that's Ecclesiastes. You know, you've read the book. It's vanity of vanities. If there is no resurrection, it's all. So if you can't do that, then what are you even talking about? Mm. So if you're relying on God to raise you from the dead through faith in Christ, rely on him for everything. That's what he's getting at. Yeah. Now, what's the significance of the fact that God orchestrated an extremely painful trial in Paul's life to teach him not to rely on or trust in himself, but mm-hmm. in God for, for Paul? Yeah. Well, it shows me, first of all, that, as I said a moment ago, that self-reliance is a problem for everybody. And so I have to I have to sniff it out of myself. Lord God, would you show me ways I'm relying on myself and not on God who raises the dead? Show it to me. Second of all, just the kindness of God in trials. Uh, none of them are accidental. They're orchestrated. They have a specific purposes. purpose. Third, that we can know what those purposes are. We can have a sense biblically of why God brings trials into our lives. It'd be similar to the Apostle Paul. So those are a number of thoughts that I get out of that. 
Ultimately, what was the outcome of this trial, and how does Paul expect to continue to be delivered as we look at verses 10 and 11? Well, he said he w- he has delivered us, and he will deliver. So, behold, we live. <laughs> Apparently, we did, you know we felt in our hearts the sentence of death, but we didn't. We, mm-hmm. we, we survived. So, similar to Philippian jail, they came, the magistrates came the next day and just set them free. Uh, or maybe he just recovered from the severe beating. We don't know what happened, but um, he uh, God delivered us, and so we're still alive. We're still ministering. And we're going to continue to hope in him. We set our hope in him mm-hmm. that he's going to continue to deliver us as long as you folks, the Corinthians, keep praying for us. So if you keep investing in us and buying shares in this company by prayer, God's going to keep answering your prayers mm-hmm. and delivering us. And it isn't just you, but many people are praying for us. The, 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 the prayers of many, the favor that would be granted and answered to the prayers of many. Yeah, it's amazing that he seems to expect and really urge them to help them by mm-hmm. prayer. Yeah. And we learn a lot about prayer there. One, that it's it's helpful that we pray mm-hmm. for brothers and sisters who are serving, yeah. uh, who are facing trials. Yeah. Um, but also, there's a particular outcome, I think, that comes from praying with brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and then seeing great things happen as a result of that. What is that outcome and why is that so important in the Christian life? Well, there are two aspects of prayer that I always think about. First is prayer changes me and the second is prayer changes things. Um, and so the second is is very mysterious to me. It's just that I don't know how the infinitely wise, providential, powerfully active God weaves our prayers in anything. Mm. He already has figured out what he's gonna do and he's gonna do it. However, he does say prayer is effective. The prayers of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So prayer actually does deliver prisoners from prison. The whole church was earnestly praying to God for Peter, and he was delivered. Hmm. In a clear, in Acts 12, a clear answer to prayer. No doubt about it. That's It's definitely underscored in that way. So they prayed, and God answered and delivered Peter. So there's that. But also prayer changes me. And so what it means is, first and foremost, one of the things we really struggle with as human beings is indifference. Uh, am I my brother's keeper? The priest and the Levite walking by on the other side of the road from the bleeding guy. They didn't hit him. They didn't Mm. kick him. They didn't add to his, they just ignored him because they didn't care. Am I my brother's keeper? So Christians are taught you are your brother's keeper, your your brother's brother. Mm. So you should care, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Okay, Lord, how do I do that? Well, pray for him. Yeah. Pray for them. Get involved in what's breaking their heart. Get involved in what joys they have. Thank God with them. And then guess what's going to happen? You're going to get drawn together and your heart's going to care. Yeah, it's a beautiful picture and, and really is one of the chief joys, I think, uh, of a uh, local church is uh, being able to walk with one another, both mm-hmm. as we uh, celebrate life's joys and God's kindnesses to us, but also as we walk through trials and challenging times. Amen. What significant claim does Paul make in verses 12 through 14, and why would it also be important for pastors and other Christian leaders to be able to make the bold claim of verse 12? Well, you know, we noted right before we started here, it's a very similar claim that the author of Hebrews makes in Mm. in Hebrews 13, where he says, brothers, we're confident we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. That's Hebrews 13. Here he's saying, you know, our conscience testifies that we've conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity sincerity that are from God. In other words, brothers, we are what we appear to be. Mm. And that's integrity to be able to, and boy, do we need that. We need to be able to trust our spiritual leaders and to say, I know there's a lot of, of charlatans and hypocrites and deceivers, but we are what we appear to be. We are conducting ourselves in holiness and in the sincerity that comes from God. Mm. And we're not doing it by worldly patterns. We're not doing it in worldly wisdom, but only by God's grace. It's not because we're so great. Worldly wisdom there would say, because we're such amazing, great people, 
people. Uh, no, it's because God's grace has mm. been strong yes. in us. And, and so that's, that's the, the boast that he's making here. What issue is Paul addressing in verses 15 through 17? Well, uh, he's dealing with the fact that he changed his plans. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we said, the super apostles, I think, were hammering on Paul in whatever way they could get. It's like, ah, here's a guy that promises he's going to be there, and now he's not coming. Changed his plans. And so he has to address why he uh, changed his plan, what the original plan was. He planned to visit you on He said, I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back uh, um, to you from Macedonia and and have you, you know, I was going to spend some time on my way to Judea. And then he has to say, look, I didn't make such a plan lightly or in a worldly fashion. Lightly is, I don't know. I, yeah, I guess we'll be there. Uh, or in a worldly fashion, the plans I make are done from worldly motives to try to gain something from you, like get money from you and all that. Look, we don't do that. However, we are just men and things come up and we have to make changes. There are new things that we learn. We're not God. We're not omniscient. And so we do make changes. We do make new plans. And as human beings, we're going to do that. But it doesn't mean we don't love you. It doesn't mean we make plans. We, we say in a hypocritical way, yes, and we really mean no. Or we say, yes, yes, and then tomorrow it's no, no. He's saying, look, we don't do that. There were mm. good reasons why we changed the plans. And how does Paul link that change of plans to the gospel of Christ in verses 18 and 19? That's rather remarkable. It's like, yeah, I changed my plans and it's not yes, yes, no, no. But I want you to know that, that let's pick up on that whole yes and no. Our whole message to you isn't yes and no, but in Christ it always is yes. It's like, huh, we're talking about your change in plans and now we're soaring up into the heavenly realms to right. talk about Jesus being God's <laughs> <more> yes. <laughs> and so Jesus is, is God's yes and amen for no matter how many promises have ever been made in the Old Testament, in Christ, they are all of them yes and amen. Isn't that beautiful? Mm. So you look at those timeless promises made to the people of God and Jesus is God's yes and amen to every one of them. Now, talk a little more about that, how exactly Christ uh, is God's yes to all those eternal promises of the Bible, and, and what important statement Paul makes in verse 21 about our security in Christ. All right, well, to couch it in the terms that Paul gives it, that Jesus is God's yes, I guess the most important question that could ever be asked in a yes-no pattern um, would be, Almighty God, I am a sinner. I'm condemned because of my sins to eternal death and hell. Is there a way that I can be forgiven and reconciled to you and spend eternity with you in heaven and not in the hell I deserve? And the answer in Christ is yes, yes. He is the yes and amen to that. Mm -hmm. And all the other promises in the Old Testament are subservient to that promise of salvation, of forgiveness of sins, of having the serpent's head crushed on our behalf that we might live forever, that we can live beyond the grave. That is the yes and amen. But there are lesser promises as well that come along the way. And he also talks about this seal that uh, has been put on us. How does the sealing of the Spirit help us stand firm in Christ? And how does this same seal serve as a deposit guaranteeing our full inheritance? So the seal is a sense of authentication. Uh, so we didn't really know for certain what uh, the governor's uh, signature look like, let's say, or or Caesar's, you know, order, and so they would seal it with a signet ring and give you a sense of of authenticity. So um, the Holy Spirit is God's seal on us that we are genuine Christians. 
So uh, that that is a testimony to us that God is truly at work in us. So when you see the evidences of the Spirit within your own soul, uh, for example, you um, you are a spiritual beggar. You know you're a sinner saved by grace. You mourn over sins, and you're you're meek. I'm going through the Beatitudes. Mm. You're meek, and you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And in Romans eight, you're actually putting sin to death by the Spirit, and you're led by the Spirit to do that. And there's other evidences of being born again. Then you know you're genuine. You know that you actually are the real article. You're sealed by the Spirit, and also He's the deposit guaranteeing the full inheritance. The idea there is: uh, imagine you had uh, I don't know Jeff. Bezos or some other just unbelievably uh, wealthy man, multi, multi, multi billionaire as your father. Hmm. All right. And you are growing up in that household and you are 10 years old and tragically your parents both die. You are now an orphan. Hmm. Yes, but you're not poor. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, when you reach your majority, I guess I call the age of 21, you will come into an inheritance worth $37 billion. Well, you can't handle that at age 10. And so you can't legally receive it until then. However, we will give you a stipend check a monthly stipend to meet all your needs. Well, let's be honest, that stipend check will be bigger than 99.9999% mm. of the salaries made by people in the world. Mm. Uh, it's more than enough, but it is a fraction of the full inheritance. So yeah. the Holy Spirit gives us foretastes mm. of our inheritance. And what is our inheritance? It's heaven. It's the glory of God in heaven. And he's going to speak the glory of God into your soul, giving you foretastes of heavenly joy and telling you someday it will all be yours. Mm. Now, lest we think Paul just kind of sidesteps the question as to why he changed his plans, he does He does seem to give an answer in verse 23 of chapter mm -hmm. 1 through verse 4 of chapter 2, which is where mm -hmm. we're wrapping up today. But mm -hmm. what reason does Paul give for changing his plans? Well, basically, he's saying you couldn't have handled it. Hmm. You can't handle my visit because you're a mess. And there were things that weren't done properly and, and all that. And I just said, look, if I come now, it's going to be rough. Hmm. So I think he basically, it's like I planted the seed of Paulus water, but God made it grow. He planted some seeds in them that needed to bear fruit in genuine repentance. And he's going to circle back in chapter seven on what that was. Hmm. There was a work of repentance that that had worked in them, but it hadn't happened fully yet. It was premature. And if he came early, they have to kind of whip up on him. So he wanted to let the seeds planted, the convicting things he wrote in 1 Corinthians, and maybe another letter that we don't have, but he wanted all of that to press in on them and do its work. Because if I come now, I'm going to have to speak harshly. So I made up my mind, says Paul, not to make another painful visit to you. I, I didn't want to grieve you. I didn't want to break you apart. I wrote you out of deep distress and anguish in my heart, he says, out of tears, so that you would know that I love you, but I needed all of that to take effect in you. So it was too early for me to come. Hmm. Andy, I've got one final question for you, and then we'd love to hear any uh, final thoughts you have on what we've looked at today. What does verse four of chapter two teach us about Paul's state of mind and affection mm -hmm. for this group of believers? And how can we imitate that kind of love with our fellow Christians? Yeah, so my version says, I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know 
the depth of my love for you. And so, wow, to have that much concern about the salvation of other people in the church that he planted, it's like a spiritual father mm. grieving over the waywardness of, a, of one of his kids. And so it shows a tremendous intensity of affection that, Wes, you and I are pastors, that we should actually develop that level mm. of concern about our flock. And I wouldn't say that I'm equal to those words, but it is a goal to say this great distress and anguish of heart and tears come out of uh, out of genuine love for others in Christ. Any final thoughts for us on this passage today, Andy? Uh, I want to circle back on the issue of self-reliance. Ask the Lord to show you. Don't, mm. don't assume that there are no ways that you're living in self-reliance. Instead, say, Lord, you, and the best thing you can say on self-reliance is say, Lord Jesus, you are the vine and I'm merely a branch. Mm. Let me abide in you because apart from you, I can do nothing. So say that to him as often as you can through prayer. Well, Andy, thanks so much for taking the time to discuss this passage today. This has been episode one in our Second Corinthians Bible Study podcast, and we want to invite you to join us next time for episode two, where we'll discuss Second Corinthians chapter two, verses five through seventeen. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.